Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Hi. I hope that was for them. <laughs> really, can we just express, for all three bands so far, can we express our appreciation for that? Yeah, we're not, we're not applauding for their performance because it's not performance, right? What we're, perform- what we're applauding is, is the fact that they are, are serving Jesus with us, right? That they are leading us into an awareness of the presence of God and that he is pursuing us and inviting us to pursue him. And so, um, yeah. So thank, thank you all, <laughs> wherever you are. Have uh, you had a good day? Good afternoon? Yeah. Good. Just think, just kind of pause for a few seconds. Just, you don't have to say it out loud, but how are you coming into the space tonight? Be aware of how you're, how you're coming in. Where, where are you? Um, kind of emotionally. Can you, be, can you be present tonight? God is so gracious. He's so kind. He is this such a loving, caring father, such a good shepherd, such a good friend. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm not calling you servants. I'm calling you friends. <laughs> How mind-blowing is that? The king of the universe calls you a friend. He knows you. He knows you. And he loves you. And he wants you to be in on what he's doing. And that's the best kind of leader, isn't it? That's the best kind of friend. That's the best kind of dad. That's the best kind of shepherd who wants us to participate in what they're doing. And he's inviting us to come and see, to come and watch come and do. How was our reflection time this morning for you? As you thought about your context, as you kind of even using your imagination, put yourself in those places and you're seeing the paint on the wall in the classroom, right? You're, you're observing who usually sits in your proximity on a regular basis and start start to develop a, a sense of um, of compassion but also just deep desire for them to know Jesus had you make a list of 10 names I wanted to revisit that list just for a second because what we do with that is really important had you 
draw an arrow, whether you feel like that person is moving closer to Jesus or, or further away. And that might even feel weird to, make, weird to make that judgment call, right? It's like, who am I to know? And it's like, you don't, you don't. But what do you sense? And so there is like an, an assumption that we are enough in the know of their life to kind of make an assumption, I guess, right? That we've had those kind of conversations enough to know that, man, they're really struggling. Or they are, they are really burned out on, on religion. They're really burned out on Christianity. And there's probably some really good reasons for that. Maybe they've even experienced some spiritual trauma in their lives. And so we can have loads of compassion for that. But where are they? in relationship to proximity to Jesus? Are they moving closer to him? Are they moving further away? And there are some, there are some kind of markers to that, some, some, some things we can pick up on just in their tone and in their curiosity. And part of that is a willingness to kind of share in real time what God's doing in us. And not just the glossy good stuff. But it's like, to be honest with our story, with our friends. Again, what Ben gave us last night about having discernment about that. But what, we're, what we are, we're, we don't want to be disingenuous. We don't want to be a salesman, salesperson. We want people to see the authentic Jesus in an authentic way. I <clears throat> um, occasionally when telemarketers call, I'll just, I'll, I'll just go with it. And this guy uh, called and said, hey, congratulations, you won three-night vacation to Branson, Missouri. And I said, no, thanks. He goes, excuse me? I said, I have no desire to go to Branson, Missouri. <laughs> he said, excuse me? And I said, let me put it like this. I would rather have bamboo shoots shoved under my fingernails than to spend three nights in Branson, Missouri. <laughs> it's a little harsh. <laughs> and there was silence on the other end. And he goes, shoot, I'm with you, man. <laughs> they couldn't pay me enough to go to Branson. You know? So there was something like, missing in his his pitch that he wasn't really buying it as good news and so you have the good news of the gospel right so we can be honest with that good news so list of 10 names moving closer to jesus moving further away because how we interact with them what kind of conversations we have um, kind of depends on what their, their posture is toward Jesus. If they're curious, uh, Jesus talks about look for people of peace. When he sends his disciples out, look for people of peace who are, who are open, right? And if they are, and especially if you've been in their lives for a while, if you've been having conversations and playing ball and doing, you know, what, whatever, but also having some real conversations— and you sense that they're, man, they're, they're hungry for something real. Then 
pursue that. Offer to, hey, would you be open just to, I don't know, read the Gospel of John together? See who Jesus is? Any openness to that? It's, it's not hard. It's not bait and switch. It is a normative progression that stems out of relationship in a, your love for your friend. And the, the opposite is true, too. It's just like, man, there, there's just a, a closed-off sense. And it's like, oh, you know what they need more than anything? It's just a friend. They don't, they don't need advice. They, they sure as heck don't need a gospel presentation right now. They're not ready for that. What they need is a friend. They need somebody to listen. Somebody to ask the kind of questions that are, that are inviting real conversation. So that's, that's what all the arrow is. It's not a judgment call. They're in or they're out. It's, it's like, are they moving toward or are they moving away? And then how can I be a really good friend in either of those scenarios? In the whole host of incremental things in between. Does that make sense? Okay. Good. And really, that's the essence of what we want to talk about tonight. It's what does love require? Um, let me say one more thing just off that list, and that is uh, pray. Would you commit to praying for those 10 people on your list? And I'm, you know, maybe this is a little over the top, but would you, would you commit to praying for them daily? What that does, that kind of commitment, that gets you committed to actually praying daily, spending time with, with Jesus. But it is interceding for them. Intercession really is taking the hand of Jesus and taking the hand of your friend and just joining them. It is praying prayers that your friend is not yet ready to pray. Or just are in a, a place in life where they don't have any words. And so we get to offer words on behalf of them. But to commit to praying for them daily. Let me give you a, an example. <laughs> so we have this coffee shop, <coughs> Gray House. And um, a little bit about why we called it Gray. It's because really what we're talking about last night. It's neutral ground. It's not a Christian coffee shop. We don't name the, the, the espresso drinks after the apostles, you know, and uh, there aren't biblical, isn't biblical literature and, and stuff laying around. <coughs> but, but it's also not just a coffee shop because there are loads of, of coffee shops. What it is is a, a super intentional coffee shop whose vision is to express the love of Jesus through extraordinary hospitality and really good coffee. We have about 150 people that work there, 150 baristas. It's a college town, so some of those are four-hour shifts. Probably a third of those baristas don't yet know Jesus. 
and that's on purpose. We really desire to be a place where they can experience the love of Jesus in, on, no matter which side of the bar they're on, right? So let me give you an example of just consistent prayer. There was a, a guy when we first opened named Maher, and he was a graduate student from Jordan. And uh, he, he just looked angry all the time. And he was. He wore uh, this bandana every day, and he had this goatee, and smoked lots of cigarettes. And, but he would come in every single day to get an espresso. And we had this kitchen manager at the time named Kelly. And she became friends with Maher. And for six years, she prayed for him every day. As he was doing his grad work and his PhD, she prayed for him. And they had lots of conversations. But she also brought the, the other gray house people and campus house people into that relationship. So a lot of us became friends with Maher. And we heard his story. And we got a sense that there was some... He, he'd gone through a lot. And he had been a, a Muslim who had become an atheist. And he wanted nothing to do with God. He was hurting so badly. And it came out as anger. And it came out as, as like, you know, a middle finger to the world. But underneath that was a lot of fear and a lot of just pain. So a lot of us were just loving on him. But Kelly prayed. So I'm preaching one day, it's about this time of year, and I look out, and there's my hair. And I about fell over. And he had this smile on his face. So I went up and said, dude, it is so good to see you. Thanks for being here. He goes, I became a Christian. Yeah. Super cool. It took six years. My grandma was a bitter, bitter woman. She had lost a child at, when he was five years old, my mom's little brother, and something snapped. And she had mental illness, and her husband, my grandfather, left her with five kids. This is during the Depression. She just, she went through a hurricane. She lost her house. She was a bitter, bitter, angry, angry woman. And any time we would go to visit, we would pray for our meal, she would just laugh. She mocked it. So, flash forward... She is about 93 years old in a nursing home in dementia. She has Alzheimer's. My mom's going in to visit, and she makes this 20-minute drive, and she's praying as she goes, and she says, God, would you just give me a window of clarity? And she got there, and my grandma's eyes were clear. 
I don't know if you've been around Alzheimer's people, but people with dementia, they, they kind of have the glossy thing going on with their eyes. Her eyes were clear. And my mom starts reading out of Revelation about heaven, about this, the new city. And my grandma says, Ruth, that sounds like a wonderful place. And my mom was like, yeah? <laughs> you want to hear more? She goes, yeah. And so my mom shared the gospel. She'd been trying for 50 years to no avail, but something opened up in my grandma, and she received Jesus. My mom gets a phone call the next day saying, Ruth, something has happened to your mom. She said, what? And the nurse said, she's nice. like she's eating with the other residents. She's not cussing out the nurses. What happened? (laughs) My mom said, Jesus. And she died about three months later. Don't quit praying for your friends. Don't quit praying. Okay. None of that was what I wanted to talk about tonight. So here's what I want to talk about. What does love require? So we talked about our story, what's your story this morning, what's your context. Tonight, I want to get into more of our our posture. And this question, this question is such a wonderful question. It's a wonderful question in your friendships. It's a wonderful question in, if you're, if you're in a dating relationship, it's a wonderful question with your, with your family, with your workplace. What does love require? Because it's not a black and white, cut and dried answer. There's not a, there's not a template for most things. We want there to be a template. Just tell me what to do, dang it, Right? But it's not like that. It requires thoughtfulness. It requires discernment, wisdom. It's a bit of a moving target because what love requires today in this relationship, in this conversation, in this particular scenario might be completely different from what love requires tomorrow. And so it... It demands a dependency, a a willingness to listen to the Holy Spirit in real time and to listen to our friend who might be all over the map with what they're saying. Sometimes love requires us just to shut up. Sometimes it requires words. Sometimes love requires us to to enter into really hard confrontation. Sometimes it requires just to extend grace and mercy. What does love require? I want to use that question to frame really what is our posture as the people of God, as Jesus' followers. Um, so uh, I was on, about a year ago, I was going to speak at a thing down at Clemson. And so I was on a, a flight, and, and one flight got delayed, and so I had just a short window to make, make the, 
you know, the, the second leg of the, of the flight. And so um, I was in a hurry, and everybody is, you know, just trying to get out because everybody's running late. And I'm about three-quarters of the way back in the plane. And um, I grab my backpack, and I, I'm getting out into the aisle, and the zipper on my backpack opened up, and my underwear just flew everywhere. <laughs> and we got like 30 people behind me, right? And I'm frantically trying to collect my, my underwear. And I'm so embarrassed, and I'm shoving it in my backpack, and I, I zip it up, and I look back, and everybody's just, mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I'm just like, okay. And I start to walk off the plane as fast as I can, and I hear, excuse me, sir. <laughs> yeah, you know it. <laughs> Are these yours? So I walk out into the terminal, and did you see the latest Mission Impossible? Do you, you know what I'm talking about? They're in an airport. There's a scene in the airport, and there's this facial recognition <laughs> software, and they're labeling. They know the name of each person just by their facial recognition, you know, and, and so... So that's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing walking through this airport, and the facial recognition is picking up, and underneath it, it just says Captain Underpants, you know? <laughs> and I know no one in the airport knows, but I know that they know, and everybody is just secretly laughing at me. And it's like, so here's the question. What are we known for? What are we known for? David Kinnaman He's written a lot of books, a lot of articles about Christian posture and the church's posture in society. He says that we are mostly known for having an us-versus-them mentality. He said almost half of outsiders have a negative view of Christianity, and it's not because they don't know Christians. Just the opposite. Nine out of ten of those interviewed said that they knew Christians personally. A fifth of all people in college have significant baggage from painful and negative encounters with Christians in churches. So we, we experience people every day who have put up huge walls between themselves and God, and if you do some digging, it's likely somewhere, likely somewhere along the line that a well-meaning insider <laughs> failed to walk in wisdom toward an outsider. Here's a scripture to frame our time tonight. Colossians 4, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. Paul says, be wise. I mean, I I love these words from James. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it. 
by living an honorable life, doing good works with a humility. Everybody say humility. humility. Oh, good for you. That comes from wisdom. That's a bit antithetical, isn't it? We think of, of the wise being, you know, kind of above humility. <laughs> humility comes from wisdom. If you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover it up with, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's brand of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It's always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. If you're going to memorize some scripture, choose that one. Man, if you want to tattoo something on your arm, tattoo that. (laughs) That's wisdom. It is the kind of wisdom, God's brand of wisdom, that shows up with gentleness, with respect, with love. So Colossians says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. This morning, we talked about being attentive, being intentional. Let your conversation be full of grace. I attended a debate at Purdue's campus, and it was in Elliott Hall of Music, which holds about 6,200 people. It was packed. And it was a Christian apologist, apologist being someone who defends the faith, you know, usually an intellectual bent. And this Christian, very well known, lots of books, was debating a philosopher, an atheist philosopher. And there was a a point in the debate that broke my heart because this philosopher started to get really vulnerable. And he starts sharing about his story and how that his grandparents died at Auschwitz. And he's like, where was God? Where was God when six million people go to the death? If you, can, if you can prove to me where God was in the midst of that, I'll become a Christian tonight. And here is where the apologist, in my mind, blew it. He had an opportunity. Here's how I wish it would have played out. I wish he would have closed his notes and walked over to the philosopher and put his arm around him and weep with him. But he didn't. Instead, he said, 
Well, get ready to lose this debate. Is it about winning? Is it about being right? Or is it about extending gentleness, wisdom, love in the name of Jesus? Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt. Salt that brings flavor, but also preservation and brings some distinction. 1 Peter 3 says, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be, be, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I love that verse so much because it says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope. There's an assumption that people are going to ask, what is up with you? What is up with you? It's not that we never initiate the conversation. But if we are living life with Jesus, letting our story find its place in his story, our friends are going to ask, what's different? How we doing? You all right? Okay. I want to give an example from Jesus' life. Because what Jesus gave us was this upside-down kingdom. Jesus' brand of wisdom was completely contrary to his culture. It was completely contrary to Roman culture that he was living in, but it's also completely contrary to Jewish culture that he was living in. And so he was an outlier. He, the ultimate insider, became an outsider so that we outsiders could become insiders. I want to give you one example of how he answered this question, what does love require? how he entered into the milieu of culture um, in a surprising, shocking even kind of way. Okay? Turn in your Bible, if you will, to Mark chapter 12. Verse 13 through 17. I wanted to do just a little little discovery Bible study tonight because it is brilliant. Jesus is so brilliant. And it gives us a picture of what I'm talking about. This is uh, Jesus in the coin. Here's, here's the backstory. There's a political tension, right? Roman occupation, 
Jews are waiting for release, for rescue, for a Messiah. Um, there's a tax revolt that has happened recently. This is Passover week. Jesus has come in riding a donkey. He's been proclaimed king with palm branches. Uh, he's been turning over tables at the temple. He's been questioning authority. And then later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Excuse me for just a second. I have got a blow. Underwear all over the plane, but there we go. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You are not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So, I mean, they're affirming him. They're buttering him up, right? They're saying all sorts of nice things to trap him. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So this is the trap. And we have Pharisees and Herodians who hated each other, by the way. Pharisees were, you know, by the book, if they thought, Pharisees thought if all of the Jewish people could just keep the rules for a day, then the Messiah would come and the kingdom would enter into its fullness. You know, it's like, let's just keep the rules. Herodians were all about assimilating into culture. And so they are setting the trap with flattery. And the question was a binary question. If Jesus embraces the tax, then he's obviously not the Messiah. He's for the Romans. But if Jesus opposes the tax, then now there is, uh, you know, fodder for his arrest, and hopefully, in their minds, his death. So it's a win-win. Jesus will either lose his reputation or his life. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He's asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said, so good. Give to, back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Denarius is one day's wages. It was considered the emperor's property. Uh, it's, it's interesting that Jesus didn't have one on him, but the religious leaders did, which was against the religious law to have a denarius in the temple, which is a little fun. fact, a couple of things about what Jesus does are very rabbi-like. He doesn't answer their question w outright. He diffuses it. And the image on the front was Tiberius. The victor's crown of divinity. The inscription was Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of God, Augustus. And on the back was the image, uh, image of the goddess of peace, Pax, with the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. So the high priest of, of peace. 
Son of God, high priest of, of peace. How ironic, right? The Son of God, Jesus, the true Prince of Peace, who the people have just proclaimed king, holding a silver coin of a king who claims to be a son of God and a high priest of Roman peace. And then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him because in Roman thought, everything belonged to Caesar. So this is, this is the answer. In Hebrew thought, everything belonged to God. And so Jesus Jesus' words in, invites listeners to choose allegiances. Don't miss that. He is forcing them to choose allegiance. And he turns the table on them. So what do we do with this? How are we to think and to live as followers of Jesus? What is the way to be on the way? There are three options here. One is not in it or of it. That's the way of the Pharisees. It's sectarianism, guardians of righteousness. It is us versus them that David Kinnaman was talking about. Strong lines of delineation. Not in it or of it. We're going to sequester ourselves in our nice religious bubble and let the world go to hell. The Herodians were the opposite. They were in it and of it. Assimilation, baby. Nothing distinctive there. We become them. So us versus them, or we become them. Think about our culture. Nothing's changed much in 2,000 years, has it? Us versus them, or we become them. Jesus proposed the third way. John 17 says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. So Jesus proposed a third way, and that was not in it or of it, that was Pharisees, and not in it and of it, but in it, but not of it. Is that confusing? In it. He said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. John Tyson. In the light of the fact that we are in a political season, political election year, I think this applies. John Tyson says, Christians should recognize and obey the government even if you don't agree with them. They are part of God's created order. They bring justice. There is a sense of safety, virtue. The fact that Jesus paid taxes, Matthew 17. Um, Paul called the Roman church to submit to governing authorities, Romans 13. First Peter 2. Peter was about to be killed by the Roman government, and he tells believers that part of their service to the common good is to fear God and honor the Roman emperor. 
So there is this sense of in it. What does that look like? First of all, can we repent of our passivity and cynical withdrawal? John Tyson again. Cynical withdrawal can, can and often does foster a spiritual elitism that's close, a close cousin of the life is a battle between good people and evil people mindset. In this version, we see ourselves as a blessed remnant who must flee the surrounding squalor to preserve spiritual integrity. While it's true that we are set apart and in the world but not of it, we must not allow our posture to descend into a sense of moral superiority. Do you hear that? We have to repent of passivity and of sequestering. And we need to contribute to a, a broader vision for humanity. That what we were talking about last night, that God created humans with intrinsic worth and dignity. We mean, need to contribute in, by means of compassion for the poor and the oppressed. A, a fuller picture of the kingdom breaking in. A, a love and advocacy for the oppressed and disenfranchised. We need to care about what Jesus cares about. Jesus' list is both longer and shorter. It's basically love God and love your neighbor. Love God narrows our allegiance. Love neighbor broadens the scope of relationship. He has way more people on his list than 10. Love God shortens, narrows our loyalty, our allegiance, our priority. But love your neighbor expands way outside our comfort zone. Are you with me? Two people are. All right. We should be angry about what makes God angry. When the helpless and the oppressed are, mis oppressed are mistreated, abused, neglected, murdered, forgotten. We need to get angry over child slavery and abortion and sex trafficking, over mistreatment of immigrants, over racism and bigotry and poverty. Those things should make us angry. We should pray for the, the flourishing of the city. I love Jeremiah 29. The people are in exile. They are captives. And God says, they had been living outside the city walls, and God says, I want you to move into the city. I want you to, to move in, settle down, raise your families, invest in the economy of the city. So they were to take action but also their posture, their attitude was to seek the shalom of the city. Shalom is it's peace, but it's like holistic peace, economic peace, and relational peace, and on all levels, to seek the shalom of the city, the same city where they are exiles. Peter, in his letter, says, you friends are exiles. So instead of cursing the darkness, we are to bring the light. 
not to assimilate and lose our identity, to, to be distinctive. We are citizens of God's heavenly city, but we are also the best possible citizens of your earthly city. Romans 12 says, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Uh-huh, here we go. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Hmm. We're to be in it, but not of it. We're to be in it in, sense, in the sense of we are to be building bridges. We're to be connecting dots. We're living in the, in the midst of the stuff, right? Not sequestering ourselves off. But in it, but not of it. Which means that there is something distinctive, something salty about you, about us. We are to recognize, in John Tyson's words again, no nation is ever worthy of full compliance. Christians have conviction that resists and humility that suffers. So Paul says the next verse in Romans 12, don't become so well adjusted. <laughs> to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't fix, instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quick, quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you. Say that. Unlike the culture around you. Keeping you awake. Always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you. He develops a well-formed maturity in you. It means being discerning. It means engaging with observation. It means studying the culture and its influence and discerning what is true. It is using the Bible not as some textbook, not as God's little lesson book, but as the Word of God that is able to penetrate the living Word that is able to to, to expose, to bring light. Everything exposed by the light becomes light. It's calling a lie a lie and truth the truth. And that includes an awareness that there are things within Christian subculture that aren't so Christian. There are things in, in politics all across the board that do not line up with the way of Jesus. It opens the door also for discovery of beauty and truth in places you didn't expect them. <laughs> the quote from this morning, I actually have it on the screen now. Jesus calls his disciples to exert a double influence on society a negative influence by arresting its decay, and a positive influence by bringing light into its darkness. It's one thing to stop the spread of evil. It's another to promote the spread of truth, beauty, and goodness. 
It's not being conformed to culture. It's not being at home in this upside-down kingdom. It is being fairly subversive, not in power, but in love. So just some quick questions as we wrap up. And then we're going to enter back into just some songs of worship. One is, what is spiritually shaping us? God's brand of wisdom is gentle and loving, but it's also incredibly discerning. And we have some work to do to discern what actually has shaped our worldview. Whether you grew up in church or not, there are things across the board that are actual, essential gospel truths and things that have just been added on have been assumed. So can we be discerning? And that's where the beauty of community happens. It's hard to do that on your own. There's a collective wisdom that is infused by the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and lived out in Christian community. So, Let's also ask, what's our primary allegiance? <laughs> Do you all know a guy named Rich Viotis? You ever heard that name? Pastor in New York. Oh, you need to get to know him, but... Um, he said... Oh, if any Christian fits neatly into a political party, that Christian does not fit neatly into the kingdom of God. Oh, that's good right there. <laughs> Jim Wallace said, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. A new primary loyalty to Jesus. Rich said, you should have more in common with a Christian from another country than with an American who's not a believer. Huh. Where do our loyalties lie? And finally, what is our posture as the body of Christ? There's this creative third way that is distinctive. It is a posture of creative humility and of confident hope. And I love the pairing of those two words. And worship band, if you all would come on up and, and lead us back into just the, an awareness of the presence of God through some singing. I love the pairing of confident and hope. That gospel story that we reviewed last night should instill within us such confidence and such freedom that God knows exactly what he's doing. I was reading in Hebrews this morning, everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but that which cannot be shaken will remain. And we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And however your world and my world is shaking right now, we can bank with confidence in this foundational truth that God knows exactly what's up. We know the end of the story. And we work backwards. When you know the end of the story, you can have a confidence and you can have a freedom to enter into the chaos with the sense of the only kind of stability, stability that comes through Jesus. And that also produces a deep humility. Christians are known for a lot of things. The facial recognition software, unfortunately, is often what we're against. It's often associated with things that are not really gospel. Can we switch that? Can, can you all be the generation that changes that stereotype? Not through power, not through politics, but by taking on the nature of Jesus, who, being equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to hang on to, but he emptied himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, taking on the nature of the servant, dying for humanity. Have that attitude. Have that posture. Have that humility. Jesus, may it be so. Again, with open hands, we want to release our grasp on being right and put our full confidence in the one who is completely right. Thank you. Yet you call us not to have all the answers, but to simply reflect the light of your grace and truth. I pray for a third way, Lord. I, I pray in this year that is so poised for polarization, so poised for just, just the, the chaos that we, as your followers, Jesus, would be an, a, a non-anxious presence in a very anxious world. That we are attached to the one who actually has rescued us from this mess. encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.